0: Hey, everyone. I'm Jose Hernandez, and welcome to Behind the Backing Track for Outside and Music. Outside and Music is a media company and record label that connects jazz artists with their passionate fan bases. Please visit us at our website at outsideandmusic.com, where you can see our artists and their recent releases, our podcasts, video interviews, and links to get in touch with us. Behind the Backing Track is a monthly podcast produced alongside over here by big boss Nick Finzer and extended harmony with music journalist Dan Gross. Covering music from TV, film, and video games. This podcast digs deeper into the inner workings of the composers, arrangers, editors, and engineers of the commercial music realm. Today, I have Sam Gossner from Versilian Studios and Simon Dalzell from Ivy Audio. Uh, how about you guys uh, just say a little bit about yourselves? How about we go with Sam first?
1: Hi there, I'm Sam Gossner. I'm the founder of Versilian Studios. We develop orchestral sample libraries for
2: composers. Hey there, I'm Simon. I mainly do freelance programming work, building sample libraries. And I also have a website, Ivy Audio, where I post sample libraries that are entirely of my own creation.
0: So these guys know what they're doing with sampling and uh, instrument libraries. How about you guys just explain a little bit on what sampling is?
2: Simon, you wanna go first?
1: Sure. Well, let's say you want to be able to use, for example, a clarinet, but maybe you don't know how to play clarinet, or in the worst case, you don't know anyone who does. Uh, Well, sampling is an easy way for a composer to quickly either realize or generate a virtual rendition of what their piece might sound like by using uh, individually cut recordings of notes from multiple instruments. And they can personalize and configure these to whatever workflow or need they
2: have. The main distinction between sampled instruments and synths is that synths are generating audio in real time whereas sample libraries are just playing back many many recordings of actual instruments which makes them sound a lot more realistic and a lot more useful for orchestral composition
0: it's kind of like super complicated so like how did you guys get into this stuff you had a friend who did it and then you just like went for it and it was cool or did you guys just like start like recording just stuff in general on your own and it ended up being like something you enjoyed doing and just pursued it.
1: A couple years ago, a friend of mine lent me a fretless zither, which is basically this box that has strings on top. um, And they're individually tuned. You pluck them to play uh, the individual notes and they have a chord section. And um, I really didn't want to give it back to him. Uh, It was really fun to play, easy to tune and different keys and everything. And I said, you know what? looking at my uh, collection of several hundred dollars worth of sample libraries. Uh, that can't be that hard. Oh, I, I can probably figure this out. And uh, that became the first uh, sample library I made, which I put out back in
2: 2013, and the rest is uh, history. For me it was more, um, I, I was making really bad electronic music in high school. My friend Steve showed me FL Studio. and. I, I was really terrible at it. I think I've I've hidden all of those from the public because they're so mediocre. Uh, but then one day I discovered virtual instruments and it was like this mind-blowing revelation that I could write orchestral music on a computer. I'd, I'd always been a choir geek. I've been singing since I was really young and I sort of grew up with classical music in the house. And just, again, that revelation that I could make stuff that sounded like real instruments on a computer was really cool. Um, so I... Downloaded all of the Spitfire Audio freebies. Those were pretty much the first libraries I used. And then uh, for, for my birthday, I asked for cinematic strings. And once I started playing around with that, I thought, hey, uh, I, I could probably make one. I don't even remember why I wanted to make a sample library. I think I just thought it was cool. So I uh, went around the university asking people if I could you know, record one of the pianos that were there. And so I booked, uh, I booked a room with a piano in it. It was a nice sort of rehearsal space slash performance hall with the piano. And I booked it for the entire day, got some microphones, got an interface off of Craigslist. And just from, just from using libraries, I sort of had a plan for what I was going to do. And I had it all very laid out with the dynamic levels and everything. And I just recorded for 10 hours straight. I was completely exhausted. And then there was so much learning to do with the workflow of editing and programming at all. And it was a complete nightmare. Um, but eventually I finished it and I released it as a freebie because I didn't want to sell it. And it's now one of the most popular free libraries ever, I think. Yeah. So that's Piano in 162. Wait,
1: I think most hmm. people that use sample libraries at some point think, you know, it'd be great if I could make my own of this, you know, or yeah, yeah. I wish I could uh come up come up with exactly the sound that i want and i think a lot of what simon and i do is kind of stemmed from that desire to more shape the sound towards what we want to create rather than what everyone else is making necessarily
2: yeah definitely
0: okay yeah i can see that so like simon i i'm gonna be like completely real like when i was like trying to get into orchestral writing and like writing on my computer like piano 162 is one of the first things i downloaded (laughs) <laughs> like legit that's, so that's cool. crazy it's, I didn't oh, think that so cool. I'd run into like <laughs> the guy who you know programmed and developed that That that's actually really cool So yep that's me so in terms of what you said about sound design Sam are you guys trying to provide yourselves like kind of a market niche that no one else is going through or
1: uh, I mean for the most part we're dealing with a very saturated market uh, despite the market itself being sort of niche as a whole, there are a lot of people that develop these sample libraries. So, for the most part, yeah, we are trying to look for more interesting, unusual sounds. And also, you know, in many cases, it doesn't have to be that unusual. It just has to be something that people don't see necessarily on its own before. Uh, for example, I released the library that's uh, just a set of tubular bells. Bells, no whistles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But this library has uh, done very well, uh, mostly because normally when you buy a set of sampled tubular bells, you have to buy it as part of a whole package, and a lot of people don't want to commit to that.
0: Hmm. Okay. And you said that tubular bells were just like exploded, like just the pop, it was super popular because people just didn't want to kind of invest in a whole set.
1: For the most part, I think it's because people were interested in obtaining a quality sampling of tubular bells for their project. It's sort of a, a somewhat niche instrument. Uh, there's only so many different uh, song cases that may use tubular bells.
2: I don't know what you're talking about. I use tubular bells in all my work because they're that's, so cool. <laughs> that's because
1: you're you're a glockenspiel ninja. That's, um, that's he's, he's really good at glockenspiel writing oh, okay. that's like okay. his his one qualification that he can put on his resume Thanks, Sam. Uh, but basically it's not necessarily something that is unordinary it's something that's very ordinary in many cases but it simply hasn't appeared in that format yet in that particular way of distributing it just as itself and that's also something that you know even Simon has done some stuff with
2: for me as well, sort of what what I wanted to do with the libraries was try to build stuff that had been done before, but maybe not in a specific way. So like Sam said, the market's really saturated. And even though there aren't that many companies making really good sample libraries, there's just not that much demand for them, especially since a lot of times once you buy a really big library, like if, if you can shell out for all of the Spitfire libraries, you're pretty much set and it becomes a lot harder to justify other stuff. So you sort of have to find ways to market your libraries.
1: Uh, It's also hard to uh, get the word out about your library. For example, like when I release a freeware thing, uh, it may get 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 plus downloads. But when I release a commercial product, I may be lucky just to get a few thousand views of the page
2: yeah, and it, it really depends on the type of library as well. For me, I think I got really lucky piano in one sixty two, because I picked an instrument that everybody can use, you know, or people And who that are,
1: hadn't been sampled at that quality yet. Right. There was there's there free. was no
2: other there have been like two other free pianos that have come out since then. I forgot what they're called, but at the time I released it, that was like the best free piano available, period. There's just nothing else you know, with the five dynamic levels, two mic positions, two round robins, and sustained pedal on and off, like, nobody was crazy enough to do that much work and release it for free. In retrospect, I probably was a bit crazy to release it for free, too. But <laughs> the point is that the libraries I did after that was, um, again, since I was a choir geek, I was always sort of annoyed at the way that choir library sounded. Um, and part of the reason for that is legato transitions, and legato transitions are small samples that you record that are You know, not only do you sample sustains or maybe percussion or shorts or other articulations, but you also sample the transitions between all of the different notes. And I was always really unhappy with the way those sounded with choirs. And so the way I got around that was a technique that, you know, lots of people have thought of, just nobody's stupid enough to do it, which is that instead of just recording a short transition, you record a short initial sustain and then you record a full length transition. So typically what you do for a legato session is something like, uh, uh, and then you just chop that up. Mm-hmm. And what we did was we went uh, uh, for every single note. um, And that was just an unbelievable amount of work. <laughs> it took so long to record. And I did that with both a voice and a trombone, just sort of as proof of concept. And again, I really should have released those libraries commercially because they're really, really good, but I put them both up as freebies. Um, so that's sort of the story behind claire solo and carpenter trombone it was again trying to find some aspect of virtual instruments that wasn't used too often and sort of try that out and see what people thought about it
0: that's actually like super interesting that you like provide the fact of kind of this lack of interest in commercial products why do you think that is if you know the top of the line is kind of what everyone wants to hear in the first place like do you think the way i think about it is in my personal experience i used like free products for like about a year and a half before finally like committing in just like like buying some contact stuff straight out like contact five and like a couple of the other stuff
2: well if if you're asking why people don't buy more libraries it's just because there's such a massive gamble it's like you have no idea if this thing's actually going to sound good or if it's going to work well for you and you just you know, returns on sample libraries are really rare. So once you bought it, you pretty much have it forever. And if it's something really niche, you might only use it on a couple pieces a year, and then that's, you know, extra money you could have spent on something else, so.
1: Yeah, and on on top of that, um, you know, I did a couple of surveys with the people that test my products and I said, you know, what do you look for in a product that makes you determine if you wanna buy it or not? And overwhelmingly it was, a video of someone just taking it and using it. Just seeing someone take the instrument out of the box, virtually, of course, Mm -hmm. and metaphorically, metaphorically. (laughs) Thank you. um, Seeing someone take the instrument out of the box, metaphorically, and just turn every knob and play with every feature and go through every bit to show you exactly how it works, exactly what it does. Um, and i think a lot of that reassurance of you know here's the sound quality right out of the box is a very big part of it uh, that makes people interested in you know
2: this library over that one and that's another thing that makes marketing these things tough is that you can put as many specs as you want if you look at any of the big developers they hide the specs for all their libraries as thoroughly as they can spitfire audio will just I mean, try to understand a product page on a Spitfire Audio product. It makes <laughs> no sense. They, they give you, like, the number of samples, which is totally meaningless. They give yes. you, like, if you even try to figure out what mic positions there are, it's like they give you the mic positions, but then they also give you these these mixes. And, like, go look at the Hans Zimmer piano and just try to figure out what they actually recorded. And, and it's, like, impossible. That's, yeah, and...
0: That's, like, super um, weird, at least... Because like, isn't mic positions one of the reason you would, you would want to buy something in the first place? Like, well, you well, get I an think, idea. Yeah.
2: They're like, yeah. well, there's a close mic and there's a tree mic and there's an ambient mic, but there's also all this other stuff, and I have no idea what any of it is. The and...
1: point the point behind Spitfire is that it's a brand, right? They have a brand, they have an image, and the image of Spitfire. Is this is a great product? This is a British product. This is a product. Bespoke is a word you will Bespoke. see on every page oh, of of this Bitfire website, and that is, you know, to a lot of people, a lot of audio people, right? There's there's a the term audiophile, and some people turn it into the word audio fool, uh, because there are a lot of people that will very happily see someone say the word tube and instantly want to buy it you know
2: well and (laughs) just going on with the specs thing for me anytime i i buy a library i i tend to really look at what's actually been recorded because like i I want to know how many round robins there are i want to know if i try to play a philip glass piece is this library going to be able to handle that that's the kind (laughs) and that's the kind of thing you sort of need specs for you know if you've only got one red robin obviously playing repetitions of the same note over and over again is going to sound terrible and you know with spitfire they they don't tell you i mean a lot of people don't know that they sample their stuff in i believe minor thirds or whole tone or something it's not chromatic sampling yeah, and
1: a lot of it's only like two velocity layers
2: right a lot a of it's a bunch very of Albion? Limited, yeah very limited velocity layers um and you know even just figuring out the, the round robins, the velocity layers, the, it's yeah. So it basically, means like a, lot of... a lot of a lot of sample libraries are marked just the sound of the instrument itself, which is valid in a way, but it also means it's a lot harder to target your product at people because what sounds really good to you might not be what somebody's looking for in the sound of the library. So regardless of the detail, regardless of the work you've put into this thing, you're cheap you know five hour recording session you did might sell way better than the the massive thing where you've paid 20 musicians and you've booked a hall for a week and you've got the top of the line microphones and everything and there's just it's really tough to predict what's going to appeal to people
1: and for that you can look at you know companies like ember tone for example a lot of their stuff i'm almost positive is recorded in mono um and you know very simple setup. Uh, solo instruments—it's a lot more affordable to make that than to go and record, say, a string section, full strings all through the ensemble. And I think that's one of the reasons why there are a lot of these smaller companies like ours that are able to be agile and do these, you know, solo instruments and little things here and there,
0: and ultimately, like, come out a little bit better in the end in terms of like, you know, presence and like establishment in the well, market. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Establishment yeah. market, but presence for sure.
2: Yeah, it's just, it's 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 very possible to sell libraries that took very little effort. It, it's possible for a very low effort library to sell just as well as a high effort one. And, you know, that applies between companies too. Obviously, you know, Spitfire and orchestral tools are sort of the, the pinnacle here. But all, all of the other companies have a very wide variety of low and high effort products, I think. hmm
0: yeah, and, again, and even, you, even
2: calling them low effort and stuff has a ridiculous amount of scripting in it, and yeah. uh, they've, they've got some technologies they've worked on, too, with phase locking and phase alignment and, uh, you know, real-time vibrato and contact, and so. There's a lot of
1: very, the thing is, you know, there's a couple different ways you can look at this, right? Mm-hmm. You can brute force it by recording absolutely as many samples as you possibly can. And then you can kind of rely on the quality and, and number of the samples as a tool. You know, companies that do this, for example, East West, um, tons of samples, tons of patches, tons of just like it's almost like information the information overload method of of selling a sample library. On the other hand, you can have a very very lean sample library. But very, very well scripted, very well designed. Everything is made intuitively, carefully crafted. Really, um, I mean, you're looking at stuff like uh, the companies that make various, um, uh, like sample modeling, for example.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the one I was going to say.
1: So you know, and and of course, there's fusions of this. You know, you can have something that has a lot of sample, you know, quite a few samples, but is also very well scripted. So people can kind of find their balance in um, kind of the market based on what sort of library they're making. So for example, East West Symphonic Orchestra versus Spitfire, Albion, you know, very, very different libraries conceptually and technically. And that's, you know, they they they're off of the same kind of meat and bones, uh, meat and potatoes, I should say, <laughs> but they're they're very, they're very different in the end. Um, And that's something that a developer can use for their advantage. And again, there are many companies that are very successful at making cheap products. Uh, Like for example, we kind of uh, at Resilient Studios, we kind of specialize in the more affordable side of things. Um, And that's just something that we can do really well and that we can provide to people.
0: A whole lot of this information can sound really confusing to someone who's like just starting out what, what do you tell a you know an amateur uh composer an amateur audio engineer like what do you what do you try to advise them in and how do you get them to the point of reaching that level of being able to sample entire like instruments or like whatever in, in an efficient amount of time with an efficient like use of their time
2: as well so so are you asking if somebody wants to build a sample library, what advice do you give them? Or if somebody's shopping? uh, Both, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, they're, they're fairly different things. So I guess we can start with shopping for libraries. Again, as I said, a lot of times it's really hard to get the actual specs of a library. But there are a couple things that make sample libraries sound good. Um, so some things to look out for if they're listed is definitely... Uh, number of round robins, so that's a term you're going to hear a lot. And that just means if you record a particular sample, like say a G-sharp mezzo forte sustain, the round robin refers to how many repetitions of that particular sample you record. So if you get two round robins, that means that for every note you've recorded, you've recorded it twice. And that's so that when you repeat the same note several times, it doesn't sound exactly the same every time. Uh, that's especially important in percussion sampling. And if you don't do that, you get what's referred to as the machine gun sound because it just sounds like a machine gun. If you've got the same sample over and over again. Some some other things to look out for uh, that are always important when you're writing music with virtual instruments. Articulations. articulations just refer to different playing styles. Uh, yeah, basically just different playing styles. Um, and those are things like staccato, staccatissimo, uh, portato, legato. Um, all of these terms that have actual musical terms, but a lot of times are used slightly differently in sampling. Like, uh, marcato doesn't mean quite the same thing in an actual score as it does in sampling. Um, so sort of familiarizing yourself with what the different articulations typically actually mean uh, can help a lot if you're looking for a particular sound that you want to get. And then I'd say the last thing that would be important is the recording environment and the sound. And actually, that's probably the most important thing is do you like the sound of the library? And sometimes that can be hard to judge from walkthrough videos and stuff because there's a whole lot of tweaking you can do with libraries. If you don't like the out-of-the-box sound, a lot of times you can load up a close microphone. You can run it through spatializers. You can run it through, uh, you know, early reflection generators and reverb tails. And you can get super crazy scientific with all this stuff. But ultimately, I mean, The sound of the library is probably what's going to matter most to you. So just watch review videos, I guess. So then if we're looking at it from a, from a building side, if you want to build a library planning is everything, obviously, you're going to want to pick your instrument that you want to record well in advance. Plan ahead. Plan ahead. (laughs) I can't say it enough. (laughs) There's, there's a whole lot of things to consider. You have to, what instrument you're going to record first of all what class of instrument like a piano okay so i've decided to record a piano what type of piano is it going to be is it going to be an upright is it going to be a grand and all of this stuff is stuff that you know requires sort of some research to figure out what you want to record depending on what people like what people are asking for if you get some type of piano that's never been recorded before obviously that would be best or something weird you can do with the piano maybe prepared piano so anyway you've decided to record. You know a Yamaha C7 in a particular concert hall because you really like the sound of it or something you got to figure out how long you're going to be recording for and that's a tough one because if you're booking a hall or if you know you need quiet hours for a certain amount of time in order to record this thing you need to figure that out so get yourself a piano or sit down at your keyboard and figure out how long it takes you to play sustains for all 88 keys on the piano And then you can use that to extrapolate uh there's just so many tiny little details you can do when you're trying to build you're gonna have to figure out your microphone placement again if you can get in the hall early and do some test sessions if you can get an actual pianist to come in and play some pieces on it so you can judge the sound of the finished you know of of what the finished recording will be like that's really great if you want to shoot a trailer for the library if you want to use live video of the trailer you're gonna have to figure that out ahead of time there's um just planning, just plan every single note if you can, you know, get yourself a spreadsheet with all of the dynamic levels and how long it's supposed to take you to record them all. Figure out exactly what you're going to record in as much detail as possible before you even think about booking the finished session or anything. So yeah, totally. That was a, um, that was a bit of a ramble, but I think it works. So <laughs> no, ex- I mean, ex- exactly.
1: The The thing is, it's sort of a balancing act between fidelity and time, right? Because mm. in virtually all cases, you won't have limitless time. I mean, unless you're incredibly rich and can, or you're recording somewhere where no one cares how long you're there, what you're doing there. But I mean, even then, there is still like physical limits to uh, sampling. Um, and the the factors that you do have to balance, of course, are the round robins the number of different dynamic levels you record, the closeness of the notes you record. Are you recording it chromatically? Are you recording it diatonically? You can record it whole tone, minor thirds, whatever pattern you want. Um, And also, what's what's a? uh, Articulations. Thank you, articulations. So all four of these factors can be balanced to help figure out how you're gonna do it. So you can have a library that's chromatically sampled, but only two round robin and two velocity You know Where would you do that? Well, you might do it for an instrument where, uh, let's say I I did a broken piano a couple weeks ago, and basically every single note sounds different on the instrument, but no one really wants to hear the note twice.
2: Yeah, pitch if if you have an instrument that's, you know, broken or something, it's almost always gonna be chromatic. Because if you if you use what's called neighbor borrowing where you pitch shift some samples up or down to fill in the gaps that you haven't actually recorded, if you've got some instrument where every note sounds different, and then you pitch shift one of those notes, and suddenly you're playing a C and a C sharp and they sound exactly the same, just a half tone apart, you're gonna be like, Well that sounds like crap. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, and I mean once again plan ahead. If you can look at your instrument and kind of figure out what it's going to be like. And this is like one of the things we're often um, I often do a lot of work with other musicians. So like I'll have a marimba player there for recording marimba. We'll sit down and I say, how many different velocities, how many different dynamic layers do you feel you could pull out of this instrument? And we'll sit there. We'll figure it out. We'll go, Okay, can we do three? Can we do four? You know, what is what is the limit that you can comfortably and reliably reliably is very important, produce on this instrument? And then from there, it's a matter of a function of time and energy. So, like, for example, with crash cymbals, everyone wants to record a ton of round robins, but no one really wants to crash cymbals about 80 million times and then hold them in the air to let them ring out fully each time. It's really hard so you have to kind of, you have to consider, definitely consider the instrument, definitely consider the space, especially if you're gonna be on a budget because oftentimes you may be working in a less than uh, stellar space. I've done sampling in people's apartments where I've been like, hey, could you turn off your fridge for an hour? Will that, yeah. be, will that be bad? Because I mean, every, every decibel you can get of, of more noise floor, Means you can record quieter articulations better, more precisely, and have less need for denoising later. And of course, you know, the natural sound of the room, if it's a bad sounding space, then you want to place your mics, uh, preferably, you're using cardioids or uh, hypercardioids, something that has some sort of pattern that can deflect certain directions. And place them in such a way that you're um, ignoring the danger parts of the room. So the particularly reflective things like windows or noisy things like air conditioning units, you can often work around just by putting your mics in in smart places.
2: Yeah, no, space is a good one too. If you record in a in a small deadened room, you're not going to have to worry about release tails because the release lasts, you know, less than half a second. If but it'll recording... sound like garbage. It, well, okay, come on. <laughs> but, you know, it's, if, if you decide to record in a longer space, you're going to have to let every note ring out for longer, and it might only be a second or two longer, but when you're recording several thousand notes, that's going to add up to a lot of time. So, again, it's, uh, you can get really detailed with this stuff. Yeah. Definitely scout ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh,
0: what Sam was referencing is a little... Uh, thing that he coined with the term of, uh, gorilla sampling, <laughs> I, I always enjoy that. Um, so in, in terms of what, what is, what is your standard definition of gor- gorilla sampling?
1: Basically it's sampling on the go. You know, I, the way I do it is I have a setup that can do, um, between two and six, microphones total uh it weighs less than 15 pounds and the entire setup fits in a single bag in a backpack that i can easily carry i I have you know lightweight uh ultra portable stands like everything is designed for recording to you know getting to a place quickly setting up quickly recording and you know in and out
2: yeah Uh, well i can record eight microphones but i
1: I can record 12 now bro get it my love
2: but I can't carry them all without breaking my back. Oh,
1: <laughs> but the first necessity when you're working with other musicians, which I typically am, is making them comfortable in the environment and comfortable with the idea of being sampled. A lot of people, in fact, virtually everyone I've worked with uh, is not experienced with what sampling is. And even though it you know, sounds pretty simple on the surface, looks pretty simple... Seems pretty simple. You know, you're basically just playing a bunch of long tones. Uh, There are a lot of uh, symptoms that can manifest in people when they're being sampled. A lot of people can get very critical of themselves. You know, it gets to some points with some performers where I literally have to tell them, you know, that was
2: a good take. You don't have to do it 12 times. I've I've got an anecdote here. When I was doing Carter Trombone, he was so perfectionist about the entire process he got out his ipad with a tuner on it and for the full like three days that we recorded this thing he would play every note over and over again until the tuner said that it was perfect and i was like man we can't keep doing these notes like 10 takes over and over again and he yeah it's it's funny how people will will get into these mindsets when when they're being sampled because if you tell them to play a piece of music they'll probably make one or two mistakes, but that seems normal. But all of a sudden, when you sit people down and tell them to play individual notes, they become much more hyper-aware of, of the sounds they're making.
1: I also have a funny anecdote on that. When I was recording a, a five-player horn, uh, horn section, um, we were kind of in a hurry. The trombone session before it had run over, and because you know things happened, the player was late. Uh, and we were like, well, we might as well just, you know, get right into this. Okay, let's tune to each other. Now, here we go. And it turns out we did the entire sampling like a half step down. All the instruments were like a half step flat, uh, which totally drove <laughs> the poor person trying to tune the sample absolutely crazy. Because I'm like, it starts on an F, and they're like, that is not an F. Um, but so you, you do have to be careful to some degree about intonation, uh, and especially when you have sections you know, or instruments that have more than one string that gets played at once, such as a piano. Because on a, on a piano right, uh, for a good chunk of the keyboard, you have more than one string that's played when you press. So if one of those strings is out, the note's going to be out of tune with itself. And there's absolutely nothing you can do short of maybe there's maybe there's some crazy thing you could do with a comb filter. I don't even know, uh, to fix that. You basically just have a bad note and then you have to, you know, get rid of the samples and cover it up with the neighbors. If, you know, uh, if you don't have someone come in and tune the instrument or don't have the player, you know, start off by, uh, just getting a general intonation going. And then, you know, if it wavers, uh, that can always be fixed
0: so uh v- he S- did work on it The v- SEO, which stands for Versilian studios chamber orchestra two um was a product isn't that- it
2: versillian studio chamber orchestra or no, is it-
0: studios it, yeah okay, it no. is
1: actually plural <laughs> all right it's so, on the company registration
0: documents oh yeah. huh. so wait would you get like in trouble with yourself if you like didn't have that <laughs> Okay. I guess
1: I could make a fake knockoff of my own company called Vermilion Studio. No, yeah. Mm. Um, so or Vermilion Studio, which most people go. misspell it as. Oh
0: no. Um, I get
1: a lot of like search results from that. that
0: that's hilarious. So
1: I'm sorry. V-S-
0: VSCO two, um, started out as like a. Pad project two years ago. It was, was a it?
1: freeware library. I was going to make the next orchestral freeware library. You know, like um, uh, I'm sure uh, a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people are familiar with uh, Matthias Vestlund. Oh, I'm murdering his name. Matthias Vestlund, Vestlund, uh, his uh, Sonatina Symphonic Orchestra, which is, or uh, I I should say was at the time uh, it was released, the best freeware sample library for orchestral music you could pretty much get your hands on Hmm. basically he went through he combed through all the existing freeware samples and then he brought them together standardized them and put them in a solid package that's so he didn't he didn't actually sample anything new for it but my goal was i wanted to sample everything brand new for this orchestral sample library and it was going to be free and people were going to love it
2: and um, then he realized that making that big of freeware actually doesn't get you as much recognition as you'd hope.
1: That, but I also realized that um, you should not make multi-timbrel freeware because people don't know what multi timbral is and they don't understand <laughs> that you can have, that you can map multiple MIDI inputs into the same instrument. And I got hundreds of of support emails asking for help on this. I I linked, I linked to every, you know, like I, I had a list of for each DAW on how you would set up a multi-timbral instrument. And I had that linked on the product page originally because it, this was, I made an original VSEO one was a freeware thing. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I said, okay, we're not doing this again. And that one, um,
0: we're not doing this okay. again. Spends two years making another one. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, well, the thing about that one was it was mostly stuff I pulled from a couple recordings I had done of just like random people like playing a, a couple different songs, multi-track that I had mm. recorded years ago, a couple compositions and such, yeah, um, and pulled from at at the point I had done a couple summers of recording orchestral percussion. At this point, all those unfortunately, all those samples are just terribly outdated. I did, I did all of those earliest recordings with uh, basically a giant pile of SM fifty sevens and SM fifty eights. Ooh,
0: uh, yeah, I remember there, which, you like
1: which I have to say, the the xylophone. This is this is a fun fun trick. People don't know this, and they probably will never know unless they listen to this. But the xylophone in VSCO2 was recorded strictly using SM-57s. Just a nice. crap load of them.
0: <laughs> um, but I those... Uh... Sorry, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, I definitely remember you talking about SM-57s and 58s. Like, they were like the holy grail. And I was like... Oh, and oh, I, 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 I
1: also I also have no... I, at, at that point, I had absolutely zero idea how to set up mics in a proper stereo configuration. So I was literally just putting them around the room and then panning them however much I felt like. Um, that was a dark time. Oh, and then I I took all <laughs> the, uh, I uh, rendered out all the audio from that as uh, stereo files. I didn't save any of the original stems. I rendered it all out as stereo files Ooh. and then quickly burned it onto CDs. Oh. I have a stack of like eight CDs over there with the original VSE01 recordings. And here's the thing. That was not a very good CD burner. And I should not have burned them quickly because there's all these clicks and pops in the audio now oh. that will never, you know, come out, never be cleaned up. That's, so, that's uh, insane. A couple life lessons. Uh, don't put your things on CDs. Uh, if you do, burn it very slowly, uh, or just use a flash drive or the internet like a modern person. Um, don't record without first understanding at least a couple basic things about stereo recording. You know, you can look it up online. Look up what an AB spaced pair is, look up what a tree is. But don't just look at the illustrations, because that was my problem. You want to look at actual pictures of what these look like in actual use so that you can really see, you know, here's how it actually physically looks. Because some of the illustrations can actually be a little misleading.
2: And actually, Sam is the most important lesson of all, which is whatever you do, don't make freeware. Regardless of how <laughs> regardless of how bad you think your your first recording project is, somebody will pay for it. And it will make you more money if five people buy it (laughs) than if nobody ever buys it. There
1: there is a benefit to freeware that shouldn't be ignored, though, is that people really will like you better when you make freeware. Um, And there is kind of a company image brand side to making freeware. You know, I definitely wouldn't say... I wouldn't say don't be like Simon and make all of your products freeware. But it's it doesn't hurt to make a few. Especially like a freeware cut down version of a commercial product.
2: Uh, because okay. that... I modify my original statement. Don't make freeware until you already have some commercial stuff available.
1: <laughs> there we go. That
0: makes sense. Um. So... There are 3 additions to VSCO2. Um Are
1: there? Oh, additions, not additions. Yeah, I no, thought you said No, ad- no. no, no like, I thought I, I actually think there are 3 additions. Yes, there are. Right, we had we had
0: 2. Point... No, 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 no. I'm we not had, talking about.
1: We I'm had not, a quick not... 2.1 then 2.5 then 2.6. Yeah, there are 3 additions as well as editions. <laughs> anyway, sorry. What were you saying?
0: Um what I was going to say was there's the community edition, which is completely free. Uh, wait, is it? Yeah. No. Maybe? Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: It's actually creative Commons zero, which basically means it's... it's public domain.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what I thought from what I remember uh, us speaking about it that one time or not that one time, <laughs> like every time you, you come and rant to me about emails, that's the first, like, it, it always gets thrown in there somewhere. Um, So there's the community edition, there's, uh, isn't there a light edition too? So I guess four.
1: No, there's a community edition, the standard edition, which is your basic, uh, orchestra kind of chamber orchestra. Um, and that costs $99. And then there's the professional edition, which is everything that we could possibly imagine recording, uh, conceivably. Uh, that had anything to do with an orchestra. That includes things like harpsichords and recorders. And I think there's like some ethnic flutes in there as well.
2: And an organ.
1: And an organ by Simon uh, Dalzell, who is with us right now. (laughs) You probably didn't know it, but Simon is actually in this call at this very moment, talking to us.
0: You're ridiculous. Uh,
1: But yeah, so there's the... And then there's also the Go Edition, which is basically just the professional edition put on a flash drive.
0: Yeah, and so I in, like, in a sense, your your vision of it being freeware was realized because, like you know, the <laughs> the community put in some heavy work. So uh, the community edition of Versilian Studios Chamber Orchestra is just samples.
1: Yes, uh, it's just samples, although I did provide uh, shortly after release um, kind of a vanilla, as I call it, uh, to borrow a term from the gaming industry, set of uh, Sforzando or SFZ patches. Okay. Which which are also in the public domain. So anyone can take those patches and build on them. Uh, A couple people actually have... um, Paul Battersby made the uh, virtual playing orchestra, which is a combination of uh, the No Budget Orchestra, um, the uh, VSCO2 Community Edition, and Sonatina, and a couple other things. Uh, there's one guy who came in and said, "I want key switch patches," so he just made key switch patches, and I was like, "Great, I'll put those in the in the uh, repository on GitHub."
0: Oh, that's that's real cool. I... So yeah,
1: I mean, one of one of the great parts about freeware and the community edition type stuff is getting to see what other people make with it. Um, and I mean, even right now, I, I saw there's a project someone's working on. They're making a, uh, a new, um, they're making a new library based on the VSCO2 community editions. It's, it's a freeware library uh, where they've kind of gone in and, and tweaked things. They've added EQs, reimagined things. Uh, created all sorts of uh, effects and sections, so it's it's really exciting to see people take something you make, um, and this is also going back to why I think I create sample libraries, and they're like honestly there is nothing more exciting to me than seeing someone come along and take for example my tubular bells or. Um, you know, whatever product we're working on, the Ethereal Winds Harp, for example, tons of people have made tracks with that. Uh, and just seeing people take it and make something that you didn't expect to be made with it. Um, and that's like really one of the most exciting things to me as a developer is not only seeing users do that, but also seeing other developers do that with, with what you've been working on. Mm. Uh, that's kind of one of the reasons why Uh, I really, I do think having the community edition was the right choice.
2: Yeah. Fun. Um, all all of my product demo tracks and anytime I, anytime I've made a library, I put up the library with one demo track, which is something that I wrote. And then within a couple months, I'll have gotten so many amazing submissions from other people who've just gone and written songs using these libraries and they sent them to me and I'm like, oh, that's really awesome. Can I put that on the, on the list of demos? And I mean, some of those have like, you know, 11,000 plays by now. And that, I don't know, that makes me really happy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have I have a couple demos from um, a friend of mine, Sky. Uh, he did for a piano library of ours. And I think that has something like 25,000 views on it now. And it's like, that's great because it has his name. Sorry. That's great because it has her name on it. And that goes straight back to her so she can get credit for all that great work.
2: Yeah, well, I got you beat cuz the first demo of Piano 162 has 53,000 plays, okay? So
1: Damn it. Oh, you got me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, I think that's really awesome and just the way of thinking about just you basically conceiving this like digital instrument child yes
1: please please think of me as some as like Hephaestus working his forge building the great great lightning bolts for Zeus to
2: sling down it I see I took conceiving in the literal sense and just (laughs) give birth to virtual instruments
1: like like uh, my finger pops open and then like a little harpsichord flash drive pops out
0: you know accurate that that would be extremely efficient
1: it would be I wouldn't have to buy them from China.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess my question is like, man, there's just like,
1: what is music? No, let's music let's, is a collection of notes.
2: Let's really not do that. <laughs> sure. But like, come on, Sam, you know, quite well that that is an extremely limiting definition of music. Have
1: Have you read the definition of art music on Wikipedia? Oh. art music oh, no. otherwise no, known as real music it. otherwise known as legitimate music oh no <laughs> it makes my skin crawl <laughs> It's oh, like art music otherwise it, known it, as it, actual music I'm like Jesus Christ how big is the stick shoved up their ass
0: <laughs> um man some of that
1: pop music oh dear.
0: One thing, uh, and I guess this doesn't really happen at, you know, the, the kind of scope we're at, but I've seen myself like slowly increasing concerns from, you know, performers and the like about these sample libraries getting bigger and more popular, um, what are you guys We're gonna bring this up at some point yeah i
1: here we go yeah can,
2: this can i begin this can week... i oh, begin I so begin. simon you, can you, s- you, simon you, can, okay fine you, you go you just, you just talked about vsco for half an hour <laughs> okay fine
1: you <laughs> I, go and then i'll follow up
0: i only brought it up because it's it's something
1: no that... like you should bring it up okay yeah. right, simon.
2: you should it's, simon it's, go. It's, a, it's a good it's a good question um obviously it can be Okay, so the, so the main concern is, well, virtual instruments are getting so good that you're putting musicians out of business. That would be sort of the economical argument. And then you get other people who are just uncomfortable with the whole concept of a virtual instrument, like at a fundamental level. <laughs> like, well, I don't, um, you know, it almost feels like a desecration of their art form. If, if, you, if you approach somebody who's been playing the French horn since they were five, and, you know, maybe they use the French horn to get through the raids in World War Two or something, I don't know, you know, push it really far, and then suddenly you tell them that you want to take their performance and try to imitate it with a computer, that's almost offensive to people on a on a base level. Um, So the only things I can really do to, my only arguments I have for why virtual instruments are a really good thing is because, first of all, people who are buying virtual instruments, in the vast majority of cases, could not possibly afford to pay an orchestra. Um, none of my music that I have ever made would exist if it were not for virtual instruments. If I hadn't had access to virtual instruments, I wouldn't be a musician. Um, so there's just not even a question of putting, of me putting an orchestra out of business by buying virtual instruments because I don't have that kind of money. Um, and I think that's the case for a lot of people. A lot of people do this as a hobby or you know, a lot of people are bedroom producers. And I think, Obviously, there's more and more bedroom producers. Probably the majority of music now is produced by people in their own homes rather than in studios. Heck, there's um, a whole
1: blog dedicated to it now. I know. <laughs> They're my number
2: one uh, for piano and 162. Same here. <laughs> so thanks, <laughs> bedroom. Shout out to bedroom producer Ooh! blog. Um, and as for the second point where where people just sort of have this, like, innate negative reaction towards the entire concept of sampling instrument, well, there's, there's a lot less you can do to sort of reassure people about that, but, I mean, for for me, a virtual instrument is a mediocre impersonation of what I wish my music actually was. Um, I don't think there's anybody who would prefer to write for virtual instruments if they could afford to record a proper orchestra. Um, I might be wrong in that, but I know that me personally, I'd much rather have played by an actual orchestra that would that would be a lot more meaningful to me than to use virtual instruments so yeah. in a certain way it's not like people are you know preferring virtual instruments over orchestras or anything and it, when people try to create realistic mock-ups it's it's not uh, it's not out of hate for actual orchestras or anything it's just that that's what's available to us and if we can push this technology to bring music to more people um, and, and to allow... I mean, what's so cool about virtual instruments is that it lets practically anybody have a soundtrack. If you have a small independent game, or if you have a small album that you're working on, or uh, a, a student film, or, you know, game jams. I mean, in game jams, people can write full orchestral scores for your game within 24 hours or whatever. It's, it's incredible that we have the technology to do this kind of thing. So I think virtual instruments aren't in any way... A replacement for actual instruments and i don't see them replacing actual musicians for a very long time so that's my opinion on it
1: yeah uh regarding the kind of moral quandary i mean you have to look back at history because in very very many cases uh looking at say the evolution of the trombone uh, for example, a lot of these instruments were born to either emulate or work alongside the human voice and kind of in a sense, like some of these physical instruments uh, were almost like the virtual instruments of their time, because at that time, if you wanted, you know, your your choir to be louder, you had to pretty much get more people and. <laughs> um, that was like the only way or have have a, a one of those primitive organs at the time. but now you could add instruments that blended in and sounded similar to the voices and they could emulate the vocal techniques but at the same time, you know it, it, you'd have to kind of it's pretty obvious that a trombone is not a, is not a singer a singer's voice um, And while that distinction is a lot less with the virtual instrument, at the same time, you know, it's sampling is a means to enabling. Right. Our job, Simon and my job, is to enable people to be composers, to be musicians. Um, And if one person that uses one of my sample libraries later has enough money to hire a real musician, then I consider that a win right there, because not only do I support musicians, I pay all of my musicians um, very fair uh, wages, very whatever you know, uh, whatever we agree on contractually. Um, I prefer to work with uh, young musicians, student musicians in college, so that they can get practical resume experience. Um, so in many ways, often what Simon and I are doing is allowing first, firstly, allowing the musicians we actually work with to have this experience, to have this thing on their resume, uh, to have this kind of memento, this is me, you know, pretty much eternalized in bits and and bytes. And at the same time, we're also enabling new composers, especially young composers, to have a realistically limited and uh, intelligently designed set of instruments that will encourage them. And this is like one of my big points with freeware is there's, there's a very easy danger, and this also applies to commercial software, to make something that doesn't follow at all the real world characteristics. It just sounds good, you know. Um, And so I in my work, I try very hard to make the instruments um, have very clear real world limits, real range limits, real technical limits, uh, sustaining limits whenever, you know, it, it won't drive anyone crazy um because these things will help encourage composers young composers to write in a more idiomatic way
0: i definitely agree with the both of you and in fact i was sampling bassoons for uh sam earlier during the summer right yep and for a top secret project um top secret totally top secret um (laughs) (laughs) and
1: i think everyone knows that we're gonna be putting a contra bassoon in vsco2 i mean it's the only thing that's missing now
0: that's that's entirely fair um and one of the bassoonists their obvious main concern was like if this puts like what if this puts me out of a job in 10 years and that is a fair point but the limitations of just well not even the limitations the possibility of the the current possibilities of deep learning and all this ai stuff that's like happening recently doesn't really fit the the bill of orchestral instruments
2: oh no 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 i i gotta interrupt you here man yeah that that was gonna be my next point which was that what's gonna put Musicians out of business is not people like us recording individual notes one at a time and sort of Fudging it's, it in programming trying to get things it's Deep learning and you know AI if you want to call it that um, I mean already people have been working on speech synthesis using AI, you know, you, you feed it like a A short sentence and then you get it to fumble around until it gets something that it thinks approximates that and I mean if you think about it on the, the, the if if you gave an AI access to the internet it has scores for you know just an unbelievable number of pieces mm-hmm. and it has audio recordings of those same pieces and as soon as you can build some kind of program that puts those together you could realistically simulate any piece of music ever you wanted and i mean for if we're going into like future imagination land now my uh, my ideal future is a future i can tell my phone that I want to listen to this particular piece of music, and it will on the fly synthesize something that sounds like an actual orchestra. That is an original composition by my phone, perfectly tailored to my tastes. Um, so that's what's going to be what puts musicians out of work, in my mind. Yeah, and the thing with
1: the thing with neural networks and and these uh, sort of learning systems is it's sort of predicted that at some point they're just going to fly well beyond our comprehension of baseline understanding. Like, and and this is already happening.
2: is already like that. Nobody knows how Google or YouTube algorithms work.
1: It's, I mean, even the people that made it don't really know anymore. And uh, some of these algorithms have started to use, basically the, the neural networks, I should say, have started using their own shorthand, their own, methodology. I mean, that's basically what it's doing is humans perceive the world in a certain way. And, you know, you could also say microphones perceive the world in a certain way. And basically, with us making virtual instruments, we're combining what we get from the microphone with our perception of what we think it should sound like and how we think we should tweak it to sound right mm. but a neural network its perception is 100 is if you train it enough its perception is is incredibly accurate it can and and they're extremely versatile you can have a neural network that can simulate the sound of a trombone crescendoing if you want it and you could figure out whatever control scheme you want and basically all you have to do as a developer is iterate through training data against some sort of goal uh in one of the one of the approaches for the neural network stuff so really i mean they're basically just doing sampling Mm. to start and then once if if you're doing a um a neural network that you train but there are ones now where you just literally give it a problem and ask it to solve it it doesn't i it's crazy now um but yeah pretty much i'd say probably 20 years from now we probably won't be making sample live or if we do uh, we'll be making them as an archaicism
2: i'd say <laughs> yeah I, I would have said longer than that but what do i know
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's very likely that this technology will take a long time to mature. Mm
0: -hmm. I never really like, I guess, like fully (laughs) elaborated on my point, but um, what I I was just thinking from it about like the short term, like ten ish, fifteen ish years. Now once you start hitting twenty five and thirty, that's where I start to get a little worried myself because it's like, are they gonna like do kind of like a sound synthesis thing? Are they just gonna? Are we just gonna like sample real people and then they're just gonna? Run off with it? Are we just gonna have mus? Mu- are we gonna have musicians be like just the robots, and then the robots be actual musicians? Like,
1: <laughs> you, you know,
0: that that's like such a weird concept to think about. But it's like, but I mean, here's here's <laughs> the thing:
2: the our, uh, our our AI overlords are gonna slave chamber players. <laughs> <laughs> the, the chamber players are just gonna be locked in the concert hall playing yeah. staccatos for hour on ends for the oh. for the for the composer overlords.
1: Oh. Well, I mean the the thing is, um, even though technology always improves, the arts always find a way to find a hole in it.
2: Right? Because I mean you can you can make digital paintings that look unbelievable. And yeah. I but think you, by far, you know, oil and canvas is still a lot more popular. So Yeah.
1: There's still tons of people that paint with watercolors and oil and canvas, even though um, for example, there are tablets and not only that, but there are neural networks that paint for you. But there's still and there always will be, I believe, the strong belief that a human made product is a product that people want, a product that has integrity uh, and personality. And that's something that I think will greatly hinder um, any sort of neural network um, invasion, I guess you could call it of the music industry. I, I if you just... want to
2: talk, if you want to talk, pop music's gonna be the first thing to go. Though. Oh, yeah, pop right the, pop yeah. music,
1: like totally. Pop music is totally gonna to be the first thing to go. Oh, like I mean sure. there there already are virtually programs that will write a pop song for you. It's just a matter of time, you know, until it's literally just the singer over something a computer made. I mean, and then it won't even probably, I mean, be a singer anymore. <laughs> It'll just be...
2: Just be a really, really good Vocaloid.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, yeah I was going to say, like, Vocaloid's been out for, like, how long now? Uh, a while. I mean, I I can't, I can't put a number on it, but...
1: I think it goes back over a decade, though.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, like, I'm pretty sure it goes back to, like, at least 2007.
1: Maybe, maybe two decades? I don't know. I, I couldn't say either.
0: Yeah. And, I mean... Pop songs are pretty much already all computer generated anyway. So, I mean, yeah, they're sampled, but like that that's another thing like could neural networks possibly generate their own sounds like on their like generate yes, comparably authentic sounds. Oh, yes. totally,
1: without a question and and it it isn't going to be very long either it's just a matter of us getting to a point where we can process data fast enough in real time
0: i really don't think that would be the case like at least not like soon-ish you know like i I mean eventually everything's going to happen you know
1: i'm gonna say keep your eye out for the next five to seven years we're gonna see uh neural networks making music on google deep dream i'm Uh
2: yeah google's been working on i forget what google's the they they already did one They've with speech got...
1: synthesis where they created yep. a piano as one of their side they were like hey look at this funny side demo we did where we fed it like i think it was something like 10 hours of piano music and then mm-hmm. they had it just like spit out and it was actually like coherent like it wasn't really coherent but like
0: oh it no didn't I, I,
2: sound like yeah and and that wasn't just synthesizing crap. midi that was then run through no. that was synthesizing was, all of the sounds from scratch it was
1: literally synthesizing it sample by sample by sample i mean that one
2: audio the, audio one samples.
1: little yeah audio samples yeah not sample files
0: oh i thought you were talking about okay so i the other day i watched uh, a video of some dude who literally fed his ai like Oh, I know that video. Yeah, he, he fed
1: it a bunch of Bach MIDI files. Yeah. And but this it... is a step further. Yeah. So, this is it's, it's literally generating the sound itself from sound. There's no MIDI involved in it whatsoever at, at, at the implementation they did, which I think is really unfortunate because if you implement MIDI, then it's controllable. So, that's the next step. They create a MIDI controllable virtual instrument powered by a neural network. And that's going to just flip everything over, I think. I mean, it's, it's going to take yeah, it a couple yeah, years to do it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's what I said before. You know, everywhere online, there's sheet music, which is basically MIDI and audio representations of what that sheet music should or could sound like. And mm-hmm. once you've got that, it's, you know, not hard at they... all to imagine a system that could make the link between the two and then create a realistic version of anything at all you care to feed to it.
1: Although no one seems to be able to make a a, a good sheet music to MIDI converter yet?
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Maybe maybe thanks <laughs> to AI we'll finally get a good sheet music to MIDI uh, converter.
0: Finally. I guess just like as a as a far out thing, do you think that machine learning could possibly interpret like conduct this is way out, so like please bear with me. Do you think uh that deep learning could possibly interpret the way a certain like certain types of conductors how they conduct certain pieces for example I would say like how Mahler conducts his own music or how Bernstein conduct like the difference between Mahler conducting his own music and then Bernstein is it Bernstein or Bernstein I don't
2: I believe it's Bernstein, but don't quote yes. me on that. I,
0: I might be, like, terribly wrong on this, but Bernstein-Bernstein conducting Mahler instead. So, like, do you think that could happen off of
2: that? Yes. You'd need, totally. bigger, you'd need bigger sample sizes. you need several yeah. performances from each conductor, but, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, if, if you could obtain a couple different performances um, from each conductor that's really all you need is a couple performances and some sort of baseline you can compare them to Hmm.
2: which i yeah i mean basically any any conductor is just any conductor's performance of a piece is just a deviation from like if you picture like a garreton representation with no tempo mapping right so yeah it'd be really easy to analyze those deviations from the boring material and then simulate that
1: in fact you could actually it wouldn't be very hard to do it yourself. You don't even really even need a neural
2: network. How
0: how? There were how do you there really, were actually. How, I mean,
2: look, here's here's yeah, the thing. Like there were. Look at the score and see how he handles. You know, like uh, yeah. What's what's the rough curve he does whenever he does a ritardando?
1: Yeah. How does he typically uh you know lead the orchestra into a strong attack? How does he lead it into a weak attack? Look at you know. It'd be great to have video, of course. But I mean, basically, like I have a program, for example, on my computer that um, will make a painting of any image I put into it. And it has profiles for different artists. And basically what they've done is they've gone in and looked at how would this person make a big red paint splotch, typically. And then they'd like duplicate that and bring it into the computer. How would they make a little blue one? Okay, that's how they would do it. So they made this basically a sample library and then they said, "Okay, now you have a blue splotch over here, stick that on there." This is something that was programmed by a, a human. This wasn't something that was made by a neural network. So I definitely think it's totally achievable to do it, you know, by hand just by very careful analysis of how they conduct.
2: Yeah, that's actually something I find kind of funny is that the whole neural net thing seems like it would be really applicable to sample libraries since You know, sort of this this concept of, I guess they're calling it big data now, Um, but just this concept of having massive banks of consistent data that you can pull conclusions from, I think is really similar to the way a sample library works. It's just a massive pool of data, and you try to recreate certain things from that data uh, with what you have, in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean okay, there actually that was a, actually,
2: a, a stupid way to explain it, but but the... No
1: no no I, I get what <laughs> you mean though. There actually was I, I'm just remembering now. There was a project that created um uh a neural network which analyzed I think it was something like oh god, I, I actually downloaded the sourced material from this because uh you know a uh, Big Cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made a sample library based on the the source training data from this, which I think is something like um, twenty gigabytes of just samples that I'm pretty sure they just ripped from commercial libraries. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, basically they trained this neural network on all these sample data. You know, here's a pizzicato at this velocity. Here's a pizzicato at this velocity. Um, and then what they did was they their thing was they wanted to be able to blend between instruments, but not by overlaying instruments, but by f- actually blending mm, the, the characteristics. neural characteristics of, oh, of the neural true. network. So, yeah, and it's nah, actually you can, you can, like a,
2: you, can you, you can you can go online like a trombone pizzicato.
1: Yes, you can go online. I'll give I'll give I'll uh, I'll give you a link to this if I can okay. find it. For I you to put to with the link to the podcast. I'll, I'll put it in the, the chat in, in a sec. Yeah. But basically with this system, you can, you know, I want it 50% 30% saxophone, 20% uh trombone. And it'll blend those characteristics. It isn't blending the waveforms. It's not like you actually have to phase lock them and and then like overlay them perfectly. No. It's actually figuring out how these patterns act and then from that kind of template just kind of merging them 50 50 and that's where the future of instruments is although unfortunately this thing they only sampled it at like 11.025 k or whatever kilohertz oh geez that's like so it it isn't very high or maybe it is 22.05 i can't remember
0: that's still that half a... the quality of and a it's regular... it's also
1: it's also mono, so.
0: <laughs> that's well, here's cool.
1: the thing, you
0: that's can't do this.
1: You can't do yeah. this stuff real time yet at yeah, full true. CD quality. That, that's interesting. It's just true. a matter of, of processing, I believe. Mm-hmm. I I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it's just a matter of, uh, we don't have quite yet the processing power, to handle full CD audio. Or, and the other thing is, the more information in your data, just like the bigger your picture is that you have to give it to analyze. Mm-hmm. Um, the exponentially harder it is to train it, exponentially more effort is required to train it um, because it takes more time to train for each thing. Yeah. And it also takes more, um, you know, maybe more examples because there's little teeny, little teeny things. What's that doing there at one kilohertz, huh? What's what's this doing here at, at, you know, 17.5 kilohertz? So... You know, bringing bringing down the scale of the of the sample um, for a training scenario is is a pretty smart thing to do. But once once they manage to get things up to forty four point one sixteen, um, I really do think it's just a matter of time
0: So for us anyway. Yeah. Not for musicians. <laughs> I mean, here's
1: the thing: there will always be musicians. But how many people do you know that are making samples? For the original and uh, Sonic Mirage, which was put out in like 1984, probably no one. Mm-hmm. I mean, there may be like one, one uh, or two people out there who maybe do it just for fun, or, <coughs> but I don't think there's anyone developing Mirage sample sets commercially anymore. Yeah, because technology marches on. You know, there's there's no one. Uh, no, that's not true. There are very few people that make um, metal type or letterpress anymore. There are people that do it, just like there will always be people that will be making sample libraries. I'm sure in the future there will still be people 100 years from now that make sample libraries. But the people that make metal type, you know, very small number. Um, and it's it's in many ways probably more of a dying art. Hmm. and that's i mean i i don't know if i've if i've said this before but i consider um people who design fonts to be probably our our closest relative in terms of of another industry because they go through all the same problems especially people that design digital fonts they go through all the same problems all the same headaches all the same needs and concerns they even have round robins actually which I find very, oh, r- yeah. they don't call them that.
0: For certain types of, uh, like, well, yeah, hand, there, there were fonts, they, like, do, like, Yeah, ran there are fonts
1: wrong, where, where they have alternate characters, and they also have alternate, uh, of course, you know, you have your uh, bold and your italic, right? Those are, like, articulations. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, some fonts have multiple sizes. So, like, there might be a title size, which is optimized for a, a large print, and then there might be, like, a, a book size or... You, you may have seen these these terms looking through, uh, you know, Microsoft word or whatever, mm-hmm. but it, really, I mean, they just go through the exact same, you know, set of logical issues and problems that we have to solve when we're making sample libraries. And a lot of them, some of them synthesize, basically, they, they make up their, uh, characters digitally on the computer by, by clicking in the lines, other ones, uh, Draw it physically and then scan it. They're sampling.
0: So, have people like emailed you about like them using your prod like product, for example, piano in uh, one sixty two for like. Hey you act- got the number
2: right. People usually get the number wrong.
0: I, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Have people just emailed you and be like, been like, hey, like I, I use it in this, and then they just like send you off in a link, and then you're all happy and giddy because you get to see it in real time.
2: Yeah, yeah, that that stuff is pretty cool, actually. Um, the my, my first big sampling project I did was Pearl Concert Grand for Impact Soundworks, um, and the way that came about was my friend said, hey, there's some guy on Reddit doing an ask me anything about sample libraries, and I was like, oh, I guess I'll send him a message. It was Andrew Aversa doing an Ask Me Anything. Um, so I just, like, made a comment, and then I was like, yo, here's this library I made. Can I get an internship with you guys or something? And Andrew was like, yes, I mean, of course, we'd love to have you record a full library for us. And I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, and and so I, with my first Skype call with Andrew, I was like, yeah, so here's this library I did. And he's like, yeah, hold on, Let me let me send this to my friend. I forget who he sent it to. He sent it to somebody. And, and then he goes, yeah, actually, my friend said he downloaded th- that last week and used it on a film score. And I was like, holy crap, that's awesome. What? And again, like with like with you, you were like, oh, man, that was I, I never thought I'd meet the guy. And he's
0: like, oh, holy crap, that's awesome. Yeah, I, like, I, I was just like, holy dude, like that's, that's same um, man.
2: I, I had one friend when I was a stagehand. It was like we were just chilling, waiting for the performance or something. And I remember um, some tiny little venue. And there was some guy, and I started talking to him about music production and stuff. I don't remember why. And then adds me on Facebook. And like a couple of months later, I released Claire Solo. And he he posts a picture to Claire's Facebook page. Claire's my friend. And he goes, oh my god, are you Claire from Claire Solo? So he had discovered Piano and 162 and Claire Solo completely independently of either of us. Without realizing that I knew both of us personally. And that was just like a great... yeah that 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 that's awesome that's an awesome feeling
0: yeah dude that that's actually really cool i i mean like yeah i don't even i can't even like fathom the feeling of just like you guys getting to hear and and even like know when like something of yours is being like used you know yeah
2: it's pretty cool it's it's funny i usually imagine myself um I imagine it as though I had taken a video of myself playing the piano, and then, like, almost as if you you chopped up that video and had, you know, a short section of video associated with every note. (laughs) And and if if I hear somebody make a song with it, I'll picture, you know, like, it jumping between all of these different notes of me playing them. And I'm like, yes, that was me. I played every one of those notes. And each (laughs) note, Simon's head just gets a little lower and lower.
1: Yes, yes.
0: I... (laughs) <laughs> I was gonna make a comment earlier about when you said like make a make a trailer for it. That's extra time you have to spend. I was just mm-hmm. imagining a trailer of just like twenty minutes of just actual sampling going on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be great. I would uh, that, watch that.
2: That was part of the fun of Pearl Concert Grain. I talk about this trailer all the time, but if 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 you get people come. 90% of the time when people complain about sample libraries, and this goes back to what we were talking about with shopping for libraries, but 90% of the time when people complain, they're not complaining about the library, they're complaining about the recording and the players and the sound. And people get really, really critical. They think they're criticizing the programming and the, and the I don't know, the recording method maybe or something. And so what, what I did to prove that, you know, samples can be really really good especially with a piano i don't know if you've seen the pearl concert grand trailer sam has many times but we recorded a short video of a steadicam walking around a guy playing the piano that we actually recorded with Mm -hmm. the same mic setup that we actually recorded with um and then what i did was i took that recording i took half of the audio from it and i dropped it into melodyne and i exported it as midi and then I I sequenced the MIDI so it sounded as close as I could possibly get it. I used the same mic positions. I used everything as similar as I could get it to the actual legit recording that we did of the piece being played live. I put it all into this trailer. I said, you know, half of this trailer is sequenced audio out of a DAW and half of it is recorded live. Can you hear the difference? And there is a difference. and And you can hear it once you know where it is. But the difference is so minuscule. And you get people in the comments saying like, uh, I I didn't like it so much during this part cuz it sounds too high and and bell-like and woolly and the transients are off or some bullshit and I'm like nope that's the that's the live recording. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that must uh, always be a fun one to just play the switcheroo with.
2: It's pretty good. So from from now on my goal is anytime I record a live i try to get that kind of video if possible and you know Get them to play an actual bit of music and then compare it to a sequenced version hmm. and see how many people can actually tell the difference.
0: That's that's actually super dope. Like I, I never even like thought of like doing that kind of thing, you know.
2: Here, I'll, I'll send you the trailer real quick. <laughs>
0: yes, please. Um...
2: I I think of all this stuff I've done, this is probably the one I'm most proud of. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> And you can watch that later.
0: Yeah, dope. Um, have,
2: have fun guessing which part's sequenced and which part is live.
0: I'll, I'll figure it out, hopefully.
2: Yeah. I haven't figured it out. I'm <laughs>
0: a sample library developer. Oh, no, that's, that's oh, okay. I, I might figure it out, maybe. But you, you're gonna say Well,
2: what? I figure there, there's one thing we haven't touched on too much, which is just what the actual process of recording a library is. From start to finish i don't know if that's oh, something you be interested we can in
1: always uh we can always link my uh tutorial in there and that is true which basically goes i mean it, it isn't necessarily the greatest overview like when it gets to process i'm like you should figure out the process that works best for you but here's what <laughs> i do
0: i mean that's 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 pretty okay i i think every process is like unique and individual and i i don't think that like everyone... It's like I don't I
1: don't think everyone needs to get Rode NT1As and like little mobile mic stands. That's just how I do it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Although actually that's not how I do it because you uh, have my Rode NT1As right now. Yes. <laughs> so I have a pair of Aston Spirits instead. <laughs> um... Which I will pretty happily take.
2: <laughs> no, I guess, speaking, I guess
1: speaking of companies that hide their stats okay Aston oh <laughs> it's I mean it's it isn't bad it isn't bad but it's like I hate yeah, it when Mike, they're like they're Mike's talking about
2: more subjective than, than actually no I'm there.
1: sorry I'm sorry not Aston I'm confusing them with um antelope 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 the people that make the audio interface I use their stats page I'm just like what the... like I'm trying to look up like The total, like, dynamic range, and this and that, and it's like, what? You have like five numbers.
2: Well, they're class A. (laughs) Yeah, I know.
1: They're they're (laughs) class and they're high Z. (laughs) Class A, like, I mean, technically, class A means it's a tube. That's all class A means. It's it's a tube.
0: Okay, so what's what what is this class A class stuff mean?
2: I'm so no, nobody knows
1: <laughs> no no I, I i took a course on audio electronics just so i could have this crowning moment oh
2: but sam it has 64-bit acoustically focused cloaking
1: <laughs> cloaking does it actually say cloaking no, it
2: says it says clocking but I damn that it would have it. been but the I, greatest typo I, ever I missed i misread it at... before the klingons <laughs> arrive because the c the c and the o have the same curvature to the <laughs> oh
0: no <laughs> so i thought it was it. an
2: a it's enhanced by antelope's world-renowned jitter management talent.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, I have to say, the thing sounds great, but it's like, what the heck is actually inside it, of this? It's got analog versatility and digital efficiency. Well, I mean, you could yeah. just
0: open it up, right? And then, and then they've got um, a. Repair. No,
1: it's, it's this one's actually sealed with one of those warranty things. Uh, and great. since it's like a twenty-two hundred dollar device, I kind of don't want to break that.
0: That's fair. That's, that's at least
1: until the warranty is over.
0: That's entirely fair. That is.
1: Like I'm perfectly happy ripping apart my art devices because they're only like forty (laughs) dollars. Actually art, which is art not ART, is great because they uh I actually found schematics for their some of their stuff online. Like full schematics of all the parts and you know, what what all the resistors are and so if you wanted to, you could just crack it open and mod it, I guess.
0: I mean, I, I guess you could just look up those uh, antelope-like uh, patents, right?
1: Um, they may not go over everything, but you could find a few interesting tidbits.
0: Oh, that's fair. Um,
1: Simon is is researching something, I guess. No, I'm still here.
0: So uh, what goes into recording well? without interruptions or disturbances (laughs) or killing everything around you
1: (laughs)
2: yeah that's the only solution literally to record in a nuclear wasteland shut down
1: every ambulance oh i thought you were
2: talking about killing people
1: oh that too (laughs) i mean preferably i would get rid of humans in order to sample
2: correctly That, that would be the easiest way to ensure peace and quiet while sampling
0: because i have a sample library that is also a piano um that you can hear whispers and you can even hear laughter in one of the round robins and it it ticks me off this so is a, much.
2: Try that, to record <laughs> try to go anywhere one. try to go anywhere in the world and record thirty hours of silence. Okay? Except <laughs> for Antarctica.
1: Because you can't move a piano there pretty cheap. Oh and plus in Antarctica it's windy.
2: And that'll uh, cause battle did, cause your I did see this to this, shift. Okay, maybe I, it's not windy. I, I saw
1: this is... one plane that was very still, and I was like, "Shit, I want to sample there." But I don't think I can move a piano hey,
2: there. No,
1: you can only get things there by a big cargo plane.
2: Anyway, yeah, know, like you know, recording Pearl was great because sometimes people would just walk into the auditorium and like give them a tour, and I felt really bad because we recorded this at a at a school for the deaf and blind. Oh. the person getting a tour was i think deaf or blind and i felt really bad going up to them and being like guys can i kick you out of here we we booked the space for 3 days and we're paying a lot of money for it <laughs> like i'm really sorry to kick you out but that's rough you you just can't anticipate it we recorded some pianos in another hall that just creaks every like 10 minutes oh no just the walls go
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I had one of those, even worse. I had um, the place where we did all the percussion and most of the brass for VSCO2 was this uh, local high school. Um, and the auditorium isn't exactly a marvel in and of itself, but the, um, one day they decided they were going to test the alarm system. So every 10 minutes, the or not 10 minutes, it was like every uh, what was it? I think it was about every minute, it would go beep. <laughs> and and this is, I, I had uh, Sam Ibe and uh, um, G, uh, Justin Bellagion, uh, who are I just murdered both their names, but they're oh, um no, Francais, <laughs> oh, oui, Sam <laughs> Bellagion. <laughs> they're they're the uh canadian guys who uh have helped me a lot with uh sampling stuff and they were down here and this was like i think our second to last day of recording and we were just trying to get as much as we could get done but every every minute (laughs) and we were recording like marimba and stuff with like big sustains and we were just mm like
0: so so
1: i think i think what we did was we just left and we came back that night because luckily I have one of my relatives that uh, used to work there and um, she could get, you know, permission or whatever for us to be there at night. Um, and we came back and recorded like late at night and also on the weekends, because on the weekends, this is great. They would turn off the air conditioning. Oh, oh, oh. But on the weekdays, they left it on the whole time. So the air conditioning was on one side of the stage. So what we did, you know, um, in like uh, school auditoriums, they often have those giant like baffles that Mm -hmm. they put behind to bounce the sound out into the hall. Orchestra shell. Yeah, 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 shells. We took a row of those and we put them up about in the middle of the stage. basically bisecting the stage. And we recorded on the half away (laughs) from, and it literally reduced the noise by a solid 15 decibels. So, it was very impressive uh, noise reduction. Go really so
0: sampling.
1: <laughs> but, like, this is the kind of stuff you have to deal with, you know, when, when you're not, like, you know, paying huge bucks to be in a recording studio
2: for a gajillion hours. Well, even if you do pay huge bucks in a recording studio, a lot of times it's, you're still going to have issues. I mean,
1: yeah. Because, I mean, even a lot of recording studios aren't designed for the kind of ultra low noise recording like especially in the city i went to one and they were like well you know the space sounded amazing i would just love to record there but every day at five o'clock there's a church that meets beneath it and -hmm. they have a rock band that practices from from like five to eight or whatever so it's like you'd have to like just lose literally like half the day of potential recording time because there's just this little bit of extra noise. Yeah, that's one thing. Record at night if you can. Oh yeah, that totally. I better. I almost always you know whenever I can, uh, record at night. Um, and also avoid rush hour.
2: <laughs> yes. Oh, oh man, uh, Pearl. I I hate to say it, but in Pearl, there's a bunch of samples with cars driving by in the background. There's oh like... don't
1: even don't even get me started. I uh, I was re I was recording um, the first harpsichord I did. No, the second. Yeah, the second harpsichord I did, there were birds chirping outside the window. Aww. There was a there was a bird nest right outside <laughs> this, this person's window, and I literally I was Elon is the guy who cut samples for us, and I was like, Elon, you're gonna hate me, but I need you to get rid of all these birds. <laughs> and he did it. He 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 fixed it. He got rid of all the birds, but yeah no literally
2: literally everything that is not your becomes a problem if it's people or animals or cars or breath is a problem oh oh i edited a great set of samples where the dude either hadn't eaten just eaten um (laughs) so and you know it was like a close my favorite so every like every second or so you'd get (laughs) (laughs) from his stomach growling he's like well shit
1: I had that happening to me the other day when I was sampling uh, I have a new product coming out soon that I was just sampling myself Um, it's a guitar like thing you'll know it when you see it is this one top um, secret yes very top secret but anyway this I was recording this thing and um, basically there's a clock uh, that our, our house is full of clocks at the moment. I don't know why. I don't, and they all chime. They're all these like old chiming clocks, but there's one that is in the room above me that you can always hear when you're recording because it's above and behind, and that's the direction the mics point. Mm-hmm. So every 15 minutes, the clock would go off. So my routine became every 15 minutes, I'd stop and I'd have a drink of water. <laughs> well, for the first minute or two after I drank water, I get <laughs> so I'd be like. Just like trying to record around.
2: Yeah. No, that's great. You're like in the middle of holding a sustain and then your stomach goes <laughs> and you're like, okay.
1: Yeah. That's why I like sampling loud instruments like brass. Yes. It's not nice. like not clavichords or
2: or piano.
1: Or quiet piano. piano. Quiet mm-hmm. piano. Oh my god. Sampling um I made this broken piano. I don't know if it'll be released by the time this goes up, but I made this broken piano virtual instrument uh, and it was in a music shop right in like the heart of Boston. Uh, It's actually acoustically not a bad space, but the problem is there's a very busy road right behind it um but there's a traffic light oh no so the every time the traffic light stopped the cars there'd be yep. like a moment of extra quiet yep, yep, and yep. that's when i would do like the quiet samples and then when it got more cars uh <laughs> where, like like i'd wait a little bit for those cars to be going by and then when it seems like they're starting to stop i'll press a loud note and then by the end by the time the <laughs> decay comes in there will be no cars going by yeah that works until an ambulance goes by but yes so yeah, Simon and I are both very familiar with uh, going to all lengths. I've I have been known to um, to take clocks off the wall and rip out the batteries. Oh come on, that's the when, first when thing. When recording you have to in do. classrooms, <laughs> that's that's not even a crazy and, thing. And that's then, just the and first then I, thing you do. And then I forget to put the batteries back in, and yep. there's just like a clock without batteries sitting there. It's Actually, fun. funny funny story about clocks. Um, one of my first section recording things, I was doing a cello section and for doing like staccato and like attack, you, you have to like conduct with, with a section, you have to conduct them. You, you don't typically need to, or should conduct uh, solo players, but when you're working with a section, you pretty much need to conduct the attack, um, and the cutoff and, uh, dynamics. And if you're doing shorts, you want to conduct a steady beat. Well, um, as anyone who has uh, tried to play music under my uh, conduction will say, I am not uh, that good of a conductor. And um, it got to a point where uh, the musicians actually elected for me to set the clock in front of them (laughs) and have that conduct them rather than try to watch me do a four pattern.
2: The ultimate insult, a clock is a better conductor than you.
1: And they, I gotta say, they really, I mean, those were really nice tight staccato after that. <laughs> so, I mean, if Jose, if you really want to know, I think, I think conductors will just be replaced by clocks. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they have hands too, and they have more than conductors do, so. <laughs> uh,
0: that's, that's fair. Um, so is, is there anything else that you guys want to bring up?
1: Any other
2: battlefield stories? <laughs> um, well, there's always there's always Sam knows this one too. But the weirdest thing for me is anytime I record stuff, I count in my head. <laughs> I I tend to do really long recording sessions with just me. I've I've done a fair number of pianos by now, and basically the recording process for pianos is like akin to meditation. Essentially, yes, totally. <laughs> it's it's a bit it unbelievable. meditation. Um. So you're sitting there and you're focusing so heavily on your breathing, which is, you know, the, the point of meditation, I guess. And because if, sitting...
1: if you breathe too hard or if you breathe through your nose, yeah. you're going to screw up the samples. Yeah.
2: So, so you're really focused on keeping your mouth open and relaxed. You want your tongue to be relaxed. And the problem is if you keep your mouth open and then you wiggle your tongue, it makes little saliva noises and then you got to start over. So you're literally focused on, like, you know, basically being a statue. And then, of course, you still have to move your arm, so you have to wear clothes that don't make much noise, and you have to figure out a way to sit and move your arm in such a way that doesn't make too much noise. Um, and also oh, that man.
1: won't hurt after five hours.
2: Yeah, and also that won't hurt after five oh, hours man, dude ten hours or whatever. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm holding a note, right, I'm holding <laughs> this note, and if I don't count in my head, I lose track of it, and suddenly it'll be, you know, I, I, I lose track of how loud something actually is. So I'm like, I can't tell if that sustain is still loud or if, or if it's time for me to let go of the key or what. So I end up counting in my head and I'll be like, OK, for the for the low notes that sustain a lot longer, I'll do maybe 60. You know, they're not actual seconds, but it's just a reference. And for the high ones, I'll do maybe 15. And... I've
1: actually I've actually hallucinated. <laughs> I, I don't I don't count. So I'll be sitting there holding a note and I'll be like, that's still that's still sustaining. That's yeah. those, then I realized it's literally in my head yeah it's it's actually quiet, and it's, you've
2: just been sitting there holding I've been tea. sitting
1: there for like maybe a minute after pressing after it, it died just sitting there and I'm just like okay time to do the next note
2: <laughs> so anyway that is why I counted my head and then so of course you know I've been sitting there for 10 hours counting in my head and then I've done that for two more days in a row so I've just done three consecutive days of sitting there for 10 hours a day counting up to 15 or up to 60 in my head repeatedly and then I'm driving home and I realize that I'm still counting in my head and I'm at like 120 and then I go oh my gosh why am I still doing that stop and then five minutes later I'll realize I'm up to 300 and I'm counting up you know one three two three three, and then I catch myself I'm like stop doing that why are you still doing that? and it lasted for like two weeks I just <laughs> Oh, no. I'm not even kidding. Oh, I'd, oh. I'd be sitting around and I'd realize I was I was counting up again. It was, like, it was really bizarre.
1: There was this one time I was sampling percussion, alone, which if and and here's here's the thing. So oh
0: man, I remember you telling me this.
1: Yeah, lights, make noise, especially like stage lights, because like the power mm-hmm. for them has like fans in there, so it'll keep the uh, you know, power transformer whatever cool um so i have to turn off all the all, all i have is work lights above me there's no lighting in the auditorium pitch dark and i'm yep. i'm in there like and this is the weekend right so they have the ac off it's like probably july or something no it's ac a very homey feeling you never think it's about very oh, it's very
2: homey one of my <laughs> favorite parts of sampling stuff is that you never you never get to be alone in a dead silent auditorium i mean think about that how yeah. many times have you personally gotten to sit in a dead silent auditorium for 10 hours with with no limit
1: yeah like never right
2: (laughs) yeah it's it's pretty cool
1: but um i was yeah i was gonna say like i did this for a whole week and I, i didn't do 10 hours i only did eight hours because i'm a wuss um so eight hours every day nine to five i'd like pack a little lunch um and like by the last day my health was just starting to slip and I, I very nearly threw up just from the stress. And I'm through this, I, I wasn't. Sam, you got to take
2: care of yourself.
1: Man. <laughs> no, I wasn't doing piano. I was like doing brass um, instruments. So like I was really, you know, having to like. Way myself. more
2: taxing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Doing, doing high notes, having to sustain them, being depressed because my range is small. Aww. And in, in this in the space of this week, I increased my range by an entire fourth. <laughs> just from just from doing like literally hundreds of long tones and staccatos all the way up and down and up and down. So like, um, you know, like if, if there's any uh, musicians out there who like to track their progress, sample yourself once a year. Go through mm. and play all the long tones and all the staccatos and and see how your uh, your range and your tone changes. Get, get like consistent mics each year. It's actually really fun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> for people who enjoy mindless monotony. <laughs> now, the, the best part is I haven't really talked about what I do much. My, my website is fairly small. I don't have many libraries. Um, and, and the libraries that are on Ivy Audio are the ones that I did all myself. I did the recording, the editing, the scripting, and all that stuff. And most of my work is contract work for other companies. And the majority of what I do is edit samples. So I sit there and I listen to the samples that have already been recorded basically the summary of my job i mean obviously i'm i'm cutting them up and organizing them and figuring stuff out uh, but most of what i do is just sit there and perform incredibly repetitive actions over and over and over again that nonetheless can't be easily automated simon Um, is
1: basically a butt monkey
2: i'm i'm basically the the sampling butt monkey i guess Um, (laughs) well
1: i i'll I'll be honest i have i have not Aside from little quick things, I have not cut my own samples since 2014.
2: (laughs) But the point is, it's so tedious and it's so boring, yet it still requires knowledge of computers and knowledge of music, which is something that's interesting, because you'll get a lot of really good programmers and a lot of really good musicians. And I don't think a really good programmer or a really good musician would be very good at building sample libraries. You kind of have to have a pretty in-depth knowledge of both in order yeah, to yeah, and uh,
1: you you have to be a business person as well.
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs>
1: if you want to make Un- money, unless
2: out. unless you're me, you just... yeah. <laughs> I
1: just... But I mean, still,
2: like like you reaching out to to Andrew, I mean, that was sure. that was a very smart move. But the point is, it's I think the only reason. I even get work is just cause it's so tedious that nobody else wants to do it. And I'm just willing to sit there and perform repetitive tasks. That's <laughs> pretty
1: much, that's pretty much it. Hey,
0: you're good at it, right?
2: I like to think so. <laughs> and, and I've built some cool little scripts and utilities to help me be more efficient. So yeah, that's always fun.
0: Thank you guys for spending the past, you know, However long, two hours, an hour and forty. However, we'll, we'll figure it out once it gets all cut. But um, thank you guys for taking the time out and uh, just kind of having a conversation with me. It, it was a little more interviewee than I'd like, but you know, it, it happens. So
2: yeah, well, cool. Anyway, yeah, no, this this was great. Thank you so much for having me on. I wasn't sure what to expect before, but it, it was a good conversation. Um, so again, most of what I do is freelance work. But if you want some awesome free libraries, you can go to ivaudio.com, And I also do a whole bunch of YouTube tutorials on contact scripting and making sample libraries. Uh, so you can check those out on YouTube. Just search ivaudio, and it's the first thing that pops up.
1: Yeah, thank you for having uh, me on as well. It's great to be here. Uh, again, you're welcome to check us out. Just search for Versal Studios, V-E-R-S-I-L studios.net. Um, And uh, we have lots of freeware, commercial libraries. um, And I also have a blog linked to from there uh, that talks about kind of the processes of sampling, best advice, um, and all sorts of other materials. So best of luck composing, everyone. Bye-bye.